If you have a copy of scripture, we are in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, we're looking at verses 11 through 15. The book of Hebrews is in the New Testament, kind of towards the back of the New Testament, if you're looking uh, for it. My Bible just knows where I'm at. It just opened right up to it. I didn't even have to hardly look. Wow, that works out pretty nice. Hebrews 2, 11 through 15. I'll be reading uh, this morning from the English Standard Version, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that though or that through death he might destroy the one who has the power that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I've titled this message, Jesus our brother and sanctifier. Jesus our brother and sanctifier. Now I don't expect everyone to like theology um, like I like theology. I get that not everyone wants to talk about or get into infralapsarianism or supralapsarianism and people don't want to talk about dispensationalism or election or predestination or eschatology or the free will of man and look at those ideas or whether or not Jesus was peccable or not. Uh, We don't feel the need to know about justification, sanctification, divine providence, and the Trinity, perseverance of the saints, Christian liberty, uh, the civil magistracy, all those things we, we tend not to really get into. We kind of shy away from them. I know not everyone is wired the way that I am wired. I know the average Christian doesn't get excited about theology. They don't nerd out about it like I do. And I understand that. Um, the average Christian fails to study theology. They fail to know why they believe what they believe. They will say they believe a certain thing, but they can't explain why they believe a certain thing. You see, theology is merely the study of God. And every Christian and every non-Christian has some sort of theology. Every single one of us has some sort of view of who God is. We have a theology of God. I guess that is why it gets me excited. I guess that's probably what gets me excited about theology. I love to know what guides people to where they are at and see their view of 
of God, and whether we admit it or not, there, our view of God guides us to how we see certain things, even in the scriptures. And so often we have no idea that our theological beliefs shape us and include uh, included in that as our behavior. It shapes our behavior and why we do certain things or why we believe a church should do certain things. And and we don't know, we don't understand why where that comes from, and it's really uh, stems from a theologically held belief. Let me give you an example. If we were to look at the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, it teaches us that the Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, although the light of nature and the work of creation and providence do so far as manifest the goodness and wisdom and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. You say, well, that's a mouthful. It is. But if you don't believe that, then you believe that we can be illuminated by another truth. It means that you believe that illumination can come to us through another truth and that something else is sufficient to bring saving knowledge to man. Or if you believe that baptism should be administered to infants, then you probably should not be in a Baptist church because Baptists clearly believe that baptism is administered to all those who actually profess repentance to God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we baptize people. You see, theology forms what we believe. And it will even direct our actions at times. And that's why I love theology. That's why I'm committed to preaching and teaching sound doctrine in the church. This is why I painstakingly go over sermons sometimes and why I'm always certain I can adequately defend anything I say from the pulpit. Because as a pastor, one of the jobs I have as a, as a pastor of the church is to protect the flock. And I protect the flock against heresy, against false teaching, against things that are not biblical or even things that are extra biblical. You see, we get trapped into heretical teaching because we would rather have things the way we want them. We'd rather have uh, have our belief about God formulated the way we want to believe about God rather than how God has provided. And so we begin to look for things outside of God's revealed will or God's revealed word to inform us and to make us feel better. In other words, heresy leads us down a pathway that makes it all about us. And we say, well, I want to be fulfilled in this area of my life, so I'm going to create or make or accept a theology that makes me feel better about me and my ego. And this is why when we confront someone, at least when I've confronted someone that's had a heretical view, they get defensive because that that heretical teaching has meant so much to them. And so uh, they've grasped onto that teaching because it's made them feel better about themselves. And when you remove that teaching, you say, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. People really get upset and they get mad and they get angry because they've held on to that view for so long because it's made them feel so much better about themselves, even though. Sinful. The letter to the Hebrews is about theology. Right at the beginning, it speaks about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The author displays for the reader that the Father and the Son are God, 
and yet distinguished from each other. The author then spends time making it clear that the Son of God is higher than the angels and that the angels were created by the Son of God to worship and serve the Son of God. In chapter 2, he gives some instruction, a warning, and makes sure that we know that Jesus is fully human and that he has come to redeem people, which is why he came as a man and lived a life free from sin. Now let's pause right there because that right there, that truth confronts a heresy. It confronts a heresy that says that Jesus was, was truly God, but he wasn't truly man. You see, people could not accept that Jesus uh, was God as God could possibly suffer. And so they thought that, that he only appeared to suffer, but he didn't really suffer. In fact, the Christian science movement teaches some of this when they say that suffering and death are an illusion and only exist because we lack faith. That's not what scripture teaches, and the author of Hebrews debunks that. There was also a heresy that went the other way. It said that Jesus was not truly God, but he was an intermediate, not fully God and not fully man. This was known as Arianism. They said Jesus was God's agent of creation, but Jesus was the first created and therefore was subordinate to the Father as a created being. And this modern day Arianism is known as Jehovah's Witnesses. That's what they teach. We also have the monocyte heresy, which limits the humanity of Jesus to the physical and that only his mind and soul were truly divine. So he had a human body, but his nature was not human. It was divine. And you say, well, pastor, why are you telling us all about these heresies? Why do I care about them? Well, for a few reasons. One, because all of these heresies that, that we look at, and I just mentioned, were dealt with at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And at the Council, the, the dual nature of Christ was confirmed that he was truly divine and that he was truly human and that that they dwelt in an in or in an unchangeable union with one another. And so both natures exist in Jesus Christ, that he is truly God and that he is truly man and that uh, neither nature abolishes the other nature. Now remember, last week we said that Jesus was the founder of our salvation, that Jesus became a man, that he did this to save us, which is our text today, talks about Jesus as our brother and our sanctifier. And so it gives evidence to the fact that Jesus has come, God, man, truly God and truly man, and calls us brother, and he sanctifies us. So, let's look at that this morning. Jesus, first of all, sanctifies us. Verse 11 starts off with the word for which causes us to, it causes us to kind of stop and look back to verse 10. Remember verse 10 um, talks about that it says that God, uh, it was fitting for Jesus to come and suffer for the salvation of humanity. In order to suffer, he had to be human. And at the same time, for it to have any kind of weight, Jesus had to be God. So when Jesus came to the earth as God in the flesh, he didn't lay aside his, his dignity, no way. He set aside his glory. He temporarily set aside some divine attributes. For example, he was not omniscient when he was here as man. There were things that he did not know as a human. He was fully God and yet fully man. 
Now when verse 11 says, for he who sanctifies, it is speaking of Jesus. Jesus sanctifies and in order for him to sanctify us, he must be without sin. Now when it says he sanctifies us, that's not speaking of what we know of as progressive sanctification, which is when we become more and more like Christ. It's, it's progressive sanctifications when you come to know Jesus as your Savior and you become more and more Christ-like. That's progressive sanctification. That's not what it's speaking of here in Hebrews chapter 2. But instead it's a reference to the complete act of salvation. It's the totality of of the Christian life from regeneration to glorification for, for, for the praise and service of God. In the Old Testament, the activity of sanctification is regularly ascribed to God. It says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Here it is Jesus, and it says that he sanctifies us. The person who sanctifies us is the same person who is not ashamed to call us brothers. And F.F. And Bruce writes in his commentary this, By his death they are consecrated to God for his worship and service and set apart for God as his holy people destined to enter into his glory. For sanctification's glory has begun and glorious sanctification completed. The point is this. The personal application of the work of Christ in both the individual and in the church is this, that Jesus Christ sanctified us and is currently sanctifying us. Look what he says. Look what the author says. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. Jesus as truly man and as truly God is the sanctifier. And we are the objects of his sanctification, which he accomplished on the cross. Jesus assumed our human nature in order to offer himself on the cross as our sanctifier. Jesus sanctifies us. Now this glorious truth that we, we have... Um, this idea of, of unity with Christ and union with Christ means his concern are our concerns. His interests are our interests. What he belongs to, what belongs to Christ belongs to us. His, his peril is our peril. His suffering is our suffering. We have fellowship with Christ. His cause is our cause. His honor is our honor. If Christ Loses, we lose. If Christ wins, we win. When Christ triumphs, we triumph. If he's disgraced, we are disgraced. We have union with Christ. That's the whole idea. That he has sanctified us. That we are united with him. I don't know that we fully get the fact that Jesus Christ stooped down to our humanity to call us his. You know, when we get married... We, we often say, well, at least I do, I will say, that's my wife. Like, if I'm introduced, this is my wife, or that's my wife, Tygane. She's not in here, she's back in the nursery. When my wife is concerned, I'm concerned. But my wife has so much to offer. In our, in our marriage, she, she has so much to offer. But when Christ took the church to be his bride, she had nothing to offer. 
Do we get that? I mean, the bride of Christ, the church, you and I, what do we have to offer? What do we have to offer God? Nothing. He took her with all her liabilities, all her burdens, all her debts, all of her necessities. The church has nothing to offer, but He took her. He took the all of her. He, he took the church, all of her sin debt. He paid it. He paid the price. And now there is no line of distinction between the two. There is no line of distinction between you and Christ. He took your debt and He paid it in full and He said, here is my righteousness. He took on your debt and said, take my righteousness. And He clothes you in His righteousness and He sanctifies you and you who are sanctified and the one that does the sanctification are one. Now, I'm not saying that you become divine. But I am saying that we desire to be holy as He is holy. I'm saying that with all of our infirmities and all of our imperfections, with Christ we are one. That's what it's saying. Now, before I move on, let me be clear here because I was reading a book recently that seemed to treat salvation and sanctification as two separate things, and they're not two separate things. There is no such thing as salvation without sanctification. It's all one package. When we come to Christ and place our faith in Him as our Savior, we are sanctified. We are, in other words, set apart for God. The actual working out of that process of becoming holy will take the rest of your life. However, every true believer is in the process of growing in their sanctification. It's not an option to say that you are a believer and not be going through a process of sanctification in your life. That's not an option. You don't have the option to say, oh, well, I'm I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but I'm not going through sanctification. Then you're not a believer. Plain and simple. Then the Holy Spirit does not take up residence in you. Because the Holy Spirit is constantly waging war against your flesh. If you know Christ as your Savior. Waging war against it. You know that feeling when you go out and do something that you know you shouldn't have done and you just feel sick to your stomach? The Holy Spirit is waging war against your flesh. That, that, that feeling like when you know that you should have shared the gospel with someone and you didn't do it and you feel guilt. The Holy Spirit is waging war against your flesh. That feeling when you break in the speed limit, right? And the cop pulls you over and, and you're the pastor and he asks you your occupation. Uh, do I want to say? You know, waging, that didn't happen recently, but it has happened before, right? Waging war against my flesh. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Now I have to, I have to move on because I don't want to run out of time. But that leads me into the second point this morning, and that is this. Not only that, not only the fact that Jesus sanctifies us, that He sanctifies you. If you're a believer, Jesus sanctifies you. Point number two. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. 
Have you ever been ashamed of something? Maybe something you did, something you said. Maybe you've even been ashamed of a family member. Like, I'm not, that person's not really part of our family. That kind of thing. Jesus never feels that way about us. And church, can I just be honest? That just blows me away. That the glorious, sinless Son of God came to shameful humanity. He calls me his brother. There's, there's great disparity between me and the sinless Son of God. There's great disparity between sinful man sinless Christ but that disparity is not so great that his love doesn't conquer it and he calls me his brother it's a wonder that he's not ashamed of me I mean I'm imperfect I'm filthy I'm self-seeking I, I so often do what I want to do yet he calls me his brother Jesus chose to become human. He chose to take on humanity. Who He who eternally existed as God chose to incarnate Himself. For what? Why did He do it? In order to redeem us and call us His brother and sister. It blows me away. And as our brother, Jesus proclaims the name of the Father to us. That's what it says there. That he proclaims the name of the Father to us. Verse 12 is a quote from Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22 is known as a messianic psalm. It's a description in detail of the death by crucifixion centuries before the crucifixion was ever even known as a form of execution. Psalm 22.22 is the quote. It says in Psalm 22.22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. When the verse says, I will tell of your name, it's speaking of the attributes and of the character of God. Here specifically to His grace and His mercy displayed on the cross. We also see a parallel given when He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. That word is paralleled with the word congregation in the second half of the verse. The word congregation in the Greek is this word ekklesia, which is where we get our word church. The, the brothers of Jesus are the members of His church. Those who have been purchased and redeemed by His blood. They are His brothers and sisters. Don't miss the point that it is to Christians and Christians alone that Jesus declares the name of His Father. The world can get a glimpse of God. They can get a glimpse of God through creation. But Christ explains the character of God only to his brothers and sisters. The fact that Jesus is our brother shouldn't cause us to be flippant. But instead it should cause us to be in awe of the fact that we worship a God who fully understands our humanity. We don't call Jesus brother 
out of disrespect. We don't we don't say, hey, brother, like he's just a nobody. We call him brother out of reverence. We don't draw near in fellowship with Christ like Jesus is our homeboy. You know, you see those church, Jesus is my homeboy. We don't draw near to Jesus like he's my homeboy or he's my best buddy. We draw near in awe that the God of the universe would stoop down to my level, that He would condescend to me to call me His brother or His sister. Never forget that even though He is our brother, He is still our Lord. It is a mark of humility for Jesus to call us brother and sister. It's a mark of humility on Him, and it's a mark of arrogance for us to treat Him as anything other than Lord. He is our brother. And I'm so thankful he's not ashamed. I mean, with that said, let's notice the last part of verse 12. It says that in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I read that and I wonder what it was like just to hear Jesus sing. I mean, I, I really do wonder what he sounded like. We know that Jesus sang after the Lord's Supper. He and the disciples sang a hymn together. Some people wonder, well, I wonder what hymn they sang. Was it Amazing Grace? No, that, that wasn't written yet. Okay. The song may be old, but it's not that old. They most likely, or they did sing the great Hallel, which is the first part of Psalm 113 and 114. You know, I preach as a brother in Christ. I sing in the pew sometimes you probably want to plug your ears but I sing as a brother in Christ I don't preach as some great orator because I'm not I declare the father the best I know how I sing the best I can but imagine there was a time when Jesus spoke and sang the one who the angels worship, who is the fullness of the Father's glory, he joined in worship with his people, declaring the name of the Father to his brothers and sisters, singing praise to God. And that should cause us to draw near to him. It should really cause us to stop and think as we sit in our pew, and as we sing songs, it should cause us to stop and think that Jesus sang. When I stand up in this pulpit and I preach, I feel as if I'm only following in the footsteps of Jesus, who's gone before. And sometimes we sit and think, well, if only Jesus were here. If, if Jesus were here, I would sing then. If Jesus were here, I would sing louder. If Jesus were here, I would praise Him with all my might. If Jesus were here, I might even lift up my hands. Look out, we're getting radical. If Jesus were here, I bet you the preaching would be better. If Jesus were here, I would weep and I would cry and I would fall at His feet. If, if I could see Him, flesh and blood. Yet He is here. Even though we cannot see Him, He's here. 
Because He said, I am with you always. He didn't say sometimes. He didn't say part of the time. He said, I am with you always. Even to the ends of the earth that Jesus is here with us right now. Now, and let me tell you, church, that should cause you to rejoice. And when you come in here on Sunday morning, I don't care if the words are messed up or if we can't hear them right or if we can't sing them right. We better be rejoicing because Jesus is here and we have gathered here to praise His name. That's why we're here. He's our brother. As our brother, He also shows us how to trust God. Now there's some debate where the second quote that we have here comes from when it says, and again in verse 13, and again I will put my trust in him. However, it's held by many that it's from the Septuagint, Isaiah chapter 8 verse 17. The point is that Jesus put his trust in God the Father in his vanity. Jesus was dependent on the Father. He has perfectly trusted in God the Father for all things. This is displayed in his prayer life as we see him praying to the Father, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prays to the Father, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Prayer is an expression of complete dependence on God. And we see Jesus model this for us. So how is it that we trust in God as our brother Jesus shows us how to trust in God? How do he show us to trust in God through Prayer through our trust. How do we do that? Through through prayer. We should take everything to God in prayer. To stress our dependence on Him. We should take it all to Him and, and pray to Him. Uh, to say, God, I trust You. And He sustains us. And He will strengthen us. And He will guide us. And He will help us in every single situation. As our brother, Jesus shows us how to trust in God. As our brother... Jesus is the Son, and we are the children. Look again at the last part of verse 13. Behold, I and the children God has given me. I and the children God has given me. Jesus is God, Son, eternally. But we are children of God by new birth, which God gives to us through Jesus Christ. The point of the quote is to identify Jesus with those whom he came to save. In John chapter 6, Jesus refers to those who came to him as those whom the Father has given to him. In John chapter 17, all through the chapter, he says over and over again, speaking of believers, as those whom the Father had given to him. In this verse, we are called his children who God has given to him. In John chapter 6 verse 39 says this, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Listen, we are precious to Jesus because not only did the Father give us to him, but Jesus paid the price to have us as part of his family. And the price that Jesus paid in order to have us was death on the cross. And He will lose none of us that are His. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Jesus will not have heaven without us. He will not have us crowned without us. He will not have us thrown without us. He will not have the Father's house without us. He will not go on 
unto his rest without us, for he has made us to be part of himself. There's no such thing as a shepherd without a sheep. Jesus is the chief shepherd. There's no such thing as a father without children. Church, don't miss it. We are his gift. We are a gift to him from the Father. We are precious. He paid the price for us. And as scripture says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And as the Apostle Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Rejoice that we are children of God. And so Jesus sanctifies us. And then we see that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers which leads us into an expression of his humanity. And finally, we see that Jesus frees us from the fear and the power of death. The fear and the power of death, and the fear of death specifically may be natural for the sinner, but it's not necessary for the saint. I like to say I'm, I'm not afraid of death, but sometimes I'm afraid of how I'm going to die. Right? I'm not afraid of dying. I just want it to be quick. <laughs> but in this verse, the incarnation's in focus. As well as the purpose for Jesus coming and dying, his death and resurrection. Jesus has rendered death powerless and the fear of death meaningless. If Jesus remained in the grave, these verses would have no meaning to us. But because Jesus rose again, he conquered the grave and death forever. You see, the Christian has no need to fear death. And I know that there are Christians that are still afraid of death. I know that it holds them captive. But listen, there's no need to be afraid to die. In fact, it's even possible to, to, to look at death as your friend. It's possible to even be like Paul and know that to die is gain. Christian, listen, listen, these verses make it clear that Satan is the one who possesses the power of death. This doesn't mean that he has the power to kill people at, at will. Christ holds the keys to death in Hades. God determines the length of every person's life and he alone has the final authority in the matter of death. However, Satan tempted Adam and Eve into sin and through their sin, death entered into the world. Satan loves to see people die without Christ because they join him in hell for eternity. But here's the thing, church. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus paid the penalty we incurred. He paid the price. And He delivered us from Satan's grip. And we may die phys physically, but we will not die spiritually. In Christ, we don't fear death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even when He dies. And everyone who lives and believes in Me will never 
died. Jesus Christ came as a man. He died on the cross to remove the fear and the power of death. What do we have to fear? We have Christ by our side. He is with us. And if we're called on to die, we remember that He died in our place. And that for that very reason, we spend eternity with Him. What great news. So, I started off this message by talking about theology. Let me bring it full circle before I close. The theology we find in our text is that Jesus, who is truly God, became truly man in order to bring about our sanctification. He took on humanity in order to pay the price for our sin, but this is only true for those who are His children through faith in Him and are part of His family. And because of that, because we are part of His family, death has no power over us, nor can it grip us with fear. Just know that Jesus, God in the flesh, condescended to humanity to be crucified in order to have you and I as part of his family. Just knowing that should cause us to draw near to him in times of trial and persecution and to praise his name even in the midst of those difficult times. Remember, Hebrews is written to the church that was facing persecution. They were, they were a suffering church. They were tempted to give up their profession of faith and they were tempted to go, to go back to their old way of living. But the author of Hebrews is showing that the superiority of Christ, he's saying Christ is superior to everything. Christ is far better than anything that you had back there. And if Jesus is God who took on flesh to die for your salvation, you, can, you, can, you can't go back to your old way of living. You can't do the old things that you were doing. Your old way of believing. He is God's final word. And He entered into heaven only through suffering. And we, you and I, have to be ready to do the same. To suffer. Jesus. When we speak of the humanity and deity of Jesus, it's not just some nice little theological point that we put in the back of our mind for debate one day. Like, oh, I know more about the humanity and deity of Jesus, so now I can argue with someone. But they're precious truths that apply to our faith each and every single day that should help you in your life. When we face trials, when we have a fear of death, we remember our brother Jesus who is also our Lord and Savior, faced death and conquered it. He suffered and bled and died. And when we're going through our suffering, we remember our brother Jesus who went before us. We remember that He suffered in the flesh. That He trusted in God and remember that He was tempted just like you and I are tempted. And we're able to overcome it and know that He can come to our aid. We remember that even though we have our own shortcomings, He's not ashamed to call us brother. And we should therefore proclaim Him as Savior and Lord. And even if we were to die for our faith, we have a hope of eternity being with Him forever. I hope you understand this morning that theology matters. And it matters greatly. 
You know, I'm afraid as Baptists, we have made many attempts to steer away from creeds and confessions and catechisms. In my opinion, we've done so at the detriment of our theology. We have the Baptist faith and message, but many people don't even know what it says. In fact, if I were to ask someone to defend it, they probably wouldn't even be able to defend it. They probably have no idea what it says. I'm afraid that many Baptists don't even know why they're Baptists. If I were to say, hey, why are you a Baptist? You, you wouldn't even be able to tell me. Most people wouldn't know. They'd probably say, well, I think it has something to do with baptism. We don't even know why we believe what we believe. We're just content to just, well, the pastor said something. I believe that. You know, the early generations would memorize catechisms verbatim. They would know what it says. And now we don't even know what we believe. And we for sure don't even know why we believe what we believe. So, this morning I'd like to give you some recommendations as Baptists. And you can take them or leave them because that's a great thing about recommendations. You know, Some people are like, oh, the pastor recommended this, I'm going to do it. And some people are like, I don't care what he says. I would recommend that you get a catechism and read through it. You can find them on the internet pretty easily. The Heidelberg Catechism can be found just by punching it into Google, Heidelberg Catechism. You can go to desiringgod.org and find a Baptist catechism that John Piper put together. It's pretty good. There's also a Baptist catechism that's put together by Charles Spurgeon. You can view that online. Um, or I have taken the leisure of printing some up for you. I was going to staple them, but we don't have a fancy stapler that will staple in the middle of the pages. And I, I wanted to go buy one, but every time I went to go buy one, I was too busy this week. So anyway, these are not stapled, but I made 15 copies. If we run out, I'll make more. Okay? I have it saved on my computer. They're down on the Welcome Center. A Baptist Catechism with proofs. With proofs means with Scripture. Okay? Now... It just tells you the scripture, so you got to go look it up. Got one right here. You can go grab it and say, I'm going to read that. I'm going to read what it's about. You can take out your fancy smartphone. Some of you guys got fancy smartphones. Mine's in my pew over there. Do that so I don't get distracted. You can take out your fancy smartphone, and you can punch in, go to the App Store and punch in New City Catechism. And download the free app of the New City Catechism, and it will ask you the questions on your fancy smartphone. Let me close this morning with the first question and answer to the Westminster Catechism followed by the first question and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism. First question in the Westminster Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? Now some of you, if you've ever read my shirt, I have a shirt with the answer on it. I wear it all the time. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Real easy. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. First question, Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death 
to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Do you know what you believe this morning? Do you know why you believe it? Do you know why the author of Hebrews even bothered to write all this theology? I ask you this morning, do you even know Jesus as your Savior? Because Jesus alone, as the God-man, is the only one who can sanctify you. He is the only one that can deliver you from the power and fear of death. Do you know him today? Finally, not, not only do you know him, but are you taking the time to recognize false doctrine because you actually know theology? You know what the Bible says. You know what you believe and why you believe it. So when someone comes and knocks at your door and they're from a different organization, can you defend your belief? Or have you instead created a God in your own mind instead of how he has revealed himself in his word? Do you know why you believe what you believe this morning? We're going to go into a time of invitation just in case someone wants to respond. And then after that, we're going to go in uh, for our communion. And you're invited to stay if you know Christ as your Savior to partake with that with us. But I'll be, uh, I'll be down front just in case someone wants to respond. I'm going to close us in prayer. We're going to sing a song. And then if you want to respond to the message this morning, if the Lord's spoken to you, I want to give you that opportunity before we go into communion. Let's pray.